Good morning. I trust Jamie's discernment in the spirit. And when she said there was such a sweet presence of God here this morning, I, I couldn't nod fast enough and big enough. Did you, did you sense that this morning? There was a very sweet mantle or gentle anointing of the spirit here this morning. And I'm, I'm uh, grateful for that. So thank you all that pray for the services. It's a delight to be with you this morning. Our, our hearts are uh, going out right now to Dustin and Stephanie and their family with the loss of uh, pastor's oldest brother. Um, they haven't told their kids yet, so uh, they want to wait till Dustin is returning tomorrow from California, so when he's here, then they'll share it with the girls together. So uh, you're aware of it, but don't share anything with the girls, okay? God bless you. I'm excited about what we're going to talk about this morning. It's sort of a strange introduction to my message. Actually, um, I was thinking about things pastors rarely talk about. Most of my uh, professional, I don't like to use that word, most of my ministry career, as whether it's president of a Bible college or president of a denomination, um, I've been a pastor to pastors. And so I have been primarily in my network around the country with pastors. And I've been to conferences and I've heard them speak. And it's interesting to note what they never talk about. Um, and I thought of five things this morning that pastors rarely talk about. Um, one of them is hell. Um, it's not a comfortable subject to discuss, so we just don't talk about it very much. We don't understand it a lot. Um, another one is uh, holiness. I'm thinking the reason we don't talk much about holiness is because uh, it escapes us. God is holy. If it wasn't for the cross, we couldn't even look at him. We couldn't communicate with God. Uh, he's a holy God, and he's called us to be holy. And, and uh, so that's something that you don't often hear about. Um, the second coming of Christ. How often do you hear some pastor preach about the second coming of Christ? Because in time events, eschatology are so divisive. Everybody has a different view on when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And so we, you, the easy out is just don't talk about it. Uh, and then there's the public manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit in a worship service. That's something that we rarely talk about, too, because... Uh, um, most pastors want to have a seeker-sensitive congregation, and they want it to be um, welcoming, as we do, you know, to people in the community. And public manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit in a, in a worship service, that's difficult to get your arms around, so that's never talked about. And the fifth thing that came to my mind is one that pastors will mention most often, but unfortunately, they mention it, and that has to do with prayer. And it is so common in Scripture and so often discussed that you think, well, what new can be said about it? Um, I, have, I have a very dear friend, Dr. Doug Small, who is the National Director of Prayer for the Worldwide Church of God. And um, he has written, I, I, it's so big I had to show it to you, I had to bring it. He has written five volumes all this size on prayer. If I, if I would go through and just read the chapter headings, it would just, 
you, you just run out of breath. Um, I have dear friends that lead the national day of prayer the first Thursday of every May. It's an act of Congress. Did you know there's a national day of prayer first Thursday of every May? And yet you can go into any church the Sunday before or the Sunday after, and rarely do you hear pastors even talking about the national day of prayer. Um, but I want to talk about answered prayer this morning, and even though most of my comments are out of um, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, I have a very simple text. And it's one, it might be the second most familiar text in all of the Bible about prayer. The, I'm thinking the most familiar is probably 2 Chronicles 7.14. I see some of you nodding your head without me even telling you what it is. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, you know, I'll hear from heaven and he'll hear he'll our land. Probably the second most familiar verse about prayer in all the Bibles, Jeremiah 33, 3. It's a very brief passage, and it says this, call unto me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. And I want to just think about the first part of it. Call unto me, and I will answer you. Call unto me, and I will answer you. Our pastor in Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa, where Ramona and I attended church for 16 years, used to say publicly from his pulpit, and he meant it sincerely from his heart, that the most important service that the first church in Des Moines had. The most important service of the week was 5 o'clock every Sunday evening. And guess what that was? It was a prayer meeting. It was the one least attended. It was the one fewest people knew about. But he believed, honestly believed, deeply in his heart that the most important service of his church was the prayer meeting at 5 o'clock on Sunday evening. I've never heard another pastor say that except one. And that's Pastor Jim Cimbala from Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City. Um, <laughs> come on, let it thunder. See, Acts 4.31 says, and when they prayed, says, and when they prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. <laughs> that's what it says. Yeah, so there you go. You have it. Anyway, um, Pastor Jim Cimbala uh, or symbol, I'm not sure how that last name is pronounced. I have heard him speak before, and uh, it just makes you want to weep. He absolutely insists that the most important meeting of their church is on Tuesday evening when they have a prayer meeting. People from all over the city of New York, including transgender, prostitutes, um, not just the church people, but we're talking sinners off the street, People flock to that place, and he has said this so many times. He says, I have seen more lives transformed in 10 minutes of prayer than in 10 of my sermons. 10 minutes of real prayer than in 10 of my sermons. Now, what I'm wanting to do is to elevate in your hearts the importance of prayer as it relates to not only you as an individual, excuse me, but as it relates to the church. Because it is so terribly important for us to do that. You see, prayer is not the preparation for the work of the church. Prayer is the work of the church. Should I say that again? Prayer is not the preparation for the work of the church. It is the work of the church. 
Jesus actually said, uh, actually it was Isaiah that first said it in Isaiah 56, verse 7. But then Jesus said it, and it's recorded in several of the Gospels. I think uh, Mark 11 is where we've got it uh, going to be on the slide here in just a minute. But Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Churches get reputations. Did you know that? Um, if you've been around church very long, you know well, some churches are known as worship centers. If you really want to have the worship experience of your life, go, hmm, you know. Or some are known as discipleship centers. If you want to be discipled and really be taught in the things of God, go to this church. Some churches are known for their children and youth programs. Can you imagine, and I know a few, can you imagine what it would be like if the people of your community, if the people of Puyallup and South Hill and Pierce County, if whenever they talked about churches, they said, Celebration Church, if you want your prayers answered, that's a praying church. Because God said, my house will be called a house of prayer. God answers prayer. Call on me and I'll answer you and show you great and mighty things which you don't know. Now, I want to give you six quotes, six of my favorite quotes about prayer. Three from patriarchs, fathers in the faith, and three from newer voices. They're all patriarchs in the faith. But the first is Dr. J. Edwin Orr, who studied revival for 60 years. He earned three PhDs in the process. And he said this, whenever God is ready to do something new in his people, he always sets them to praying. Whenever God wants to do something new in his people, he always sets them to praying. And then there was A.T. Pearson, who uh, was actually a Presbyterian pastor, but a good friend of Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody, names you probably are familiar with. And Pearson wrote, whenever the church has been aroused, whenever the world's wicked have been arrested, somebody somewhere has been praying. D.L. Moody said this, every revival in history can be traced back to a single kneeling form. Max Lucado, Lucado, a newer name for you perhaps, says, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. Dr. Henry Blackaby, who's known for his book, Experiencing God, uh, which basically the theme of experiencing God was uh, don't initiate something on yourself and ask God to, to join you in the process, but look where God is already at work and then go join what he's doing. So anyway, Dr. Henry Blackaby says, revival is not what happens to the lost. It is what happens to God's people when they pray. And I'll close with Dick Eastman, Every Home for Christ, probably one of the best-known voices about the subject of prayer. He says, no obstacle can stand in the way of a praying church. No obstacle can stand in the way of a praying church. When I hear these quotes, my spirit leaps within me, just, just like Mary or Elizabeth in the New Testament, you know, when the spirit leapt within her. I, I can sense the Holy Spirit all over those statements about the importance and the passion and the power of prayer. You actually can't remove the Holy Spirit from the whole subject of prayer anyway if you're familiar with Romans 8, 26 to 27, which is a very famous passage in Paul's Epistle to the Romans. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for 
but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through world, wordless groans. That's a translation I'm not as familiar with, but that's true. Have you, have you ever, sometimes the need, the challenge, sometimes the battle is so great that you just run out of words to say. And the spirit within you just groans and moans. And, and if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit and God has given you that beautiful gift of speaking in tongues, you may be praying in the spirit. And, and your mind is not praying. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14, I think it's verse 15. He says, uh, he says my mind doesn't understand, but my spirit is praying. My spirit is praying. So anyway, um, here we are today, and I want to read to you a rather lengthy passage. Actually, I'm reading you the short, shortest portion I can. It's from Acts 11, 4 to 18. I am going to be referring to Acts 10 quite a bit this morning, but I'm going to read to you from Acts 11, 4 to 18. You say, well, why is that? And that's because Peter got called on the carpet for what happened in Acts chapter 10. He got in trouble with the brethren at Jerusalem. And so he had to go defend what God had done in Caesarea. And so he went to Jerusalem and he repeats the story of what happened in Acts chapter 10. So Acts 11 is a lot shorter, and that's why I'm reading you that. So let's just, I'm, gonna, I'm in the NIV version this morning. Let's pick it up. Acts 11, verse 4, I'm going to begin. Peter began explaining everything to them precisely as it happened. He said, I was in the city of Joppa doing what? Praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, birds of the air, and I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, obviously, he wouldn't want to do that because he's Jewish, and these are unclean animals and things, and he can't eat them. And he replied, well, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. And the voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Now, God's giving him an illustration. The Holy Spirit's giving him an illustration of what's about to happen. This is the first time ever that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to the Gentiles. It's never happened before. They've been preaching in synagogues and sharing the message of the good news to the Jews, to the circumcised believers. And yet the Holy Spirit is saying, I want what you think is impure and unclean. I want the gospel to go there. And so um, right then, uh, did I skip or did I leave off? I'll go to eight. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. And the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going. In the King James Version that I learned this story, and it says, the Spirit bade me go, nothing doubting. I love that. The Holy Spirit can bid you do something, and when there's no doubt, you just do it. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear at his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. Ramon and I have, have sat in Joppa before, um, 
when we were in Israel. It's 38 miles or so from Caesarea where this is going to happen. And he says, he will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. It unfolds, when you read the whole chapter 10, it unfolds just like a movie. Uh, it's really one of the exciting passages of Scripture in the New Testament to read. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 10, Cornelius is in Caesarea. And then uh, act, the second act of it is verses 9 to 16, Peter's in Joppa. And then act 3, 17 to 23, Peter's summoned to Caesarea. And then Peter and Cornelius meet. And finally, the Holy Spirit falls. And the story that, that I've just read to you is monumental in church history. It's monumental because the gospel went to the Gentiles for the first time. And the whole thing happened on the foundation of prayer. Cornelius, a Gentile, was in Caesarea praying. Peter was in Joppa on a housetop praying. And it triggered this whole thing. So I want to draw from Acts chapter 10 this story, five kingdom principles about answered prayer. We'll probably only have time for about four of them, but uh, let's dive into it. They all begin with the letter A, and that's just so I can help remember them. There's no magic to the letter A, but they all begin with the letter A. So we're going to begin with Acts chapter 10, verse 2, and um, it says this in my NIV version. I'll just begin with verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. He was a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need. And what does it say next? Prayed to God regularly. Some of the translations say he prayed continually. The King James Version, I learned it in it, said he prayed always. And that's where the A is. He prayed always. Now, we need to discuss that, don't we? We all have a desire to pray, and we all have not yet developed the discipline to pray as often as we should. That's why we don't talk about it very much, because we know we should be praying more, and we're not, right? But we know scriptures don't exaggerate, do they? Scriptures are not given to exaggeration. Actually, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16. Every word of Scripture is inspired by God, so they don't exaggerate. So when it says somebody's praying always, or it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, to pray without ceasing or pray continuously, you, you, know, you think, well, what, what are they saying to pray always? Well, Jesus in the garden, he said, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Uh, research, confidential research on pastors Almost all of them say they struggle with their prayer life and they have trouble being consistent and regular in prayer. And yet the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to feel guilty or condemned about the fact that we're not praying as much as we think we should or we want to. So, so what's going on here? What does it mean when it says Cornelius prayed always? He prayed regularly. He prayed consistently. Clearly it's impossible 
uh, to always, in the Sermon on the Mount, it says when you pray, go into a closet and close the door. Well, we're not going to live in a closet, are we? That's, that's not realistic to us. So what, what does this mean? You can't go to work. You, you can't go to school. Uh, you know, how do you pray always? How do you pray continually? Well, there's this wonderful revelation, and I'm going to give it to you this morning. It's in multiple passages. But I'm going to give it to you this morning from Revelation 21 and verse 3. I really, I, I can't remember if I gave you a NKJV or not. Oh, good, thank you. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. I'm just going to stop there. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Don't you know that you're body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Don't you know that your body is the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? It's a little scary, I know. That means he's with me everywhere I go, everything I do, everything I think. But the truth of Scripture is that God tabernacles with men. God dwells in us. Our bodies are... You are never far from the altar of God. A whisper or a shout of alarm, you're never far from that. You can pray and cry out to God any time of the day, day or night, any second, any minute, any hour. It doesn't matter when. And you are the temple of the living God. I know we have this image of a great, God with gray hair and a throne and he's surrounded by the four and twenty elders and the four living creatures and the glory of the colors and the, all of that stuff. And it is true. It is true. God is on his throne, not just in the heaven, but above the heavens, plural in the Bible. But it is also true that he has chosen to tabernacle and live and to dwell in you. Never more than a whisper away. That means at school or doing the laundry or preparing a meal for somebody or at work or wherever you are. See, prayer is not always a single event or a ritual or an act. We think of prayer as setting ourselves apart and getting on our knees. By the way, postures of prayer, there's, you could talk forever about postures in prayer. On your face, on the floor, on your knees, standing and walking and pacing. There are zillions of pot with your hands lifted. We could talk about patterns of prayer. All the, the, the Lord's Prayer is one of the patterns of prayer. We could talk about the five fingers of prayer, which is adoration and confession, intercession, supplication, petition. But we always dress or robe prayer in this thought of an act or a ritual when really it's more soaking it's more falling in love. It's more brooding of the Spirit. It's more beholding the face. of When you were worshiping this morning, you weren't just singing. You were praying. Your spirit was praying and, and rising to God. It reminds me of Brother Lawrence, the little monk, who uh, spent his entire lifetime washing dishes and doing service work for the monastery where he was. And uh, he finally wrote a book. He was, he was the monk that inspired all the other monks. And yet he didn't have the big job of standing in front of everybody and preaching and talking and teaching. He always, his whole life as a monk, he washed dishes. He worked in the kitchens. He scrubbed floors. He served people. 
And yet he was the one that inspired everybody, and he wrote a little book, little thin book called Practicing the Presence of God. Practicing the presence of God. And that's what praying is. It's practicing the presence of God. It's something you can do always. It's something you can do always. I want to go on to the next one. Um, Prayer accumulation or prayer accumulates. One gets the clear impression from the text of Scripture that prayer was a habit for Cornelius and a habit for Peter. It would be nice if gathering together for prayer was a habit in every church, in every nation of the world. It's not. Prayer meetings are the last meeting anybody will go to. And yet prayer is the primary responsibility and work of the church. What did Cornelius know and what did Peter know that we don't know? They understood a kingdom principle about the power of accumulated prayer. The power of accumulated prayer. You're probably familiar with Ecclesiastes chapter 4 where it says, two are better than one and a threefold cord cannot be broken. That makes sense to you in real life, doesn't it? Two oxen can, or two horses can pull a chariot faster than one horse. Two are better than one and a threefold cord, if you've ever seen rope made, one string you bust with your hands, two wrapped together, it's a little harder to bust, but you start putting three together, and the next thing you know, you can't bust it with your hands. Two are better than one. And that ties over in the book of Matthew where it says in chapter 18, it says, uh, if two of you will agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am in the midst of them. God promises to be in the midst of people when they gather together to pray. And that's the power of the passage that I, we talked about, the shaking and the rumbling overhead in Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, it was the group of them together, the place where they were was shaken. God shows up when people gather together and pray. Most revivals in history happened not because a church started praying or a person, but because the churches in a town or a community started getting together and the power of accumulated prayer just couldn't be held back. It was like a tidal wave, like a tsunami that was pushing its way through the powers of darkness and through sin and through barriers of wickedness and corruption often until it broke through to victory. In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus taught a parable, and he told his disciples in this parable because he wanted to show them always to pray and to not give up. Let me, sh- let me share with you um, Revelation 5, 8, if I could do that. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. How many of you have heard of the ministry of harp and bowl? Has anybody in the room heard of the ministry? I see one, I see two. Uh, Okay, the ministry of harp and bowl. It comes from Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 8. And um, let's read this. And when he had taken it, now let me explain that. We're talking about the lamb in heaven, okay? John is in the spirit on the Lord's day in Patmos. He's getting this this cinematic book of Revelation, you know, uh, all at one time. And in chapter 5, he sees the lamb of God in heaven. And he sees a scroll beside the throne of God. And he begins weeping because nobody 
is worthy to open the scroll. Nobody's worthy to open the scroll. And then all of a sudden, the lamb is worthy. And it says, when he, the lamb of God, has taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Now, we're talking about the power of accumulated prayer. There are these bowls in heaven. The living creatures have them. The four and 20 elders, meaning 24 elders, had them. And those bowls are the incense that are the prayers of the saints. And when saints get together to pray and they keep praying and they are persistent in prayer and consistent in prayer, and like the parable that Jesus told uh, about the unjust judge and the widow in Luke 18, when that begins to happen, these bowls begin to fill up. They begin to fill up. And you see, it's the last 30 minutes you didn't pray when they probably would have filled at the top and fallen over. But you quit early. And the lesson is don't quit. Be persistent. Keep praying. Keep pressing in. Keep asking God for your miracle or for whatever it is that sounds you in your life because eventually those bowls fill up. Um, and um, do we have eight, three to five there too? I'm not going to read all of it, but just a little of it. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all of God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. So when, when I talk about harp and bowl ministry, the harp is the worship. Don't you love the worship? I said this morning you were praying while you were worshiping. Your spirit was rising to God. You, you just you'd almost want to weep in the presence of God like we had this morning. And so you have the harp, the music, the anointing of Asaph, who was the great singer in Israel. And then you have the bowl, the prayers of the saints. And when they come together, you have the opening of the seals and, and of the scroll. It's the power of accumulated prayer. Quick story from 1824. 1824, early part of the 19th century. The British are fighting the Burmese. A missionary writer tells the true story of something happened during the Anglo-Burmese Wars in the city of Rangoon. The largest and the finest temple bell had been sunk in the river. The temple was destroyed, fell over. The big bell sunk in the river, stuck in the mire and the sand. Efforts were made by engineers even, but they failed to raise it. So everybody was prepared to give up. Until this one wise priest made an attempt to raise it, but only on the condition that his personal temple that he pastored could have the bell. Since nobody thought he could get up, get it up, they said, sure, you can have the bell. He and his assistants gathered an immense, and when I say immense, I mean immense amount of, guess what? Bamboo. You got it. You're, you're on the right track. Bamboo. You know you can't sink bamboo. It's got these hollow, any, you know what I'm talking about? If you ever, the old bamboo fishing rods, which nobody uses anymore. They've got compartments in them, and they're hollow, and they're filled with air, and they're float, and you can't sink them. So he got his friends and his assistants, and they dove down to the bottom of the river 
one bamboo stalk at a time, or maybe two or three or four. And the story goes, it, literally thousands of bamboo strips attached to that bell on the bottom of the river, and finally it began to shake, began to move. And then when the last one went on, you know, it's, it's like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Finally, there's the last one. And they took the last one down there, attached it to the bell, and that old heavy bronze steeple bell rose to the top of the river. The power of accumulated prayer. The last 30 minutes that you didn't pray was probably when you would have had your miracle, your breakthrough. Accumulated prayer can lift the heaviest burdens and break chains and loose shackles. So never give up. Never give in. You're always on the brink of a miracle. You have to understand, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his willingness. And really, it is, we're probably a little bit in error when we refer to the power of prayer. Because prayer, there's no power in the ritual or the act of prayer. It's the power of God who releases his power when people pray. Prayer is not powerful in and of itself. It's the power of God released and activated through prayer. God's so anxious and so excited to answer our prayer. And some prayers have such strong opposition from Satan that it takes many thousands of prayers to fill the golden bowls in heaven until they finally overflow into earth with an answer. And so in our text in Acts 10, it says, The angel said to Cornelius, Your prayers have come up before God. That whole thing happened because the angel said to Cornelius, your prayers have come up to God. I want to go on to the next A. I alternated between the word arsenal and arrows. I grew up in scouts, and I even, even have a award or two from shooting a bow and arrow. In fact, Ramon and I and our family went on a cruise to um, Alaska, not last year, that was COVID, the year before that. And uh, on the ship, they actually had archery competition for these 7,000 people that were on there. And as I recall, my son Andrew got first and I got second. And they gave me a ribbon, you know, with a little silver medal on it and all that kind of stuff. I love archery. I love, I love bows and arrows. And um, so I'm, what I'm really talking about is arrows in the quiver of the Lord. And this story in Acts chapter... Um, Acts chapter 10 is so filled with those arrows. And I want to encourage you to let you know that there are so many ways that God can answer prayer, your prayer. Um, in verse 3, it's a vision. There's an angel. There's another person actually come to help answer the prayer. There's a trance. There's a voice. The Spirit speaks and says, Behold, three men are seeking you. I mean, there's all these different arrows coming from the crib of the Lord. You never know when God is going to answer your prayer through one of these or any number of arrows that are in his quiver. So here's the point. God has at his disposal an arsenal of unlimited arrows. Almost always, as in the text, he will deploy several of them in answering a single prayer. Dreams. I didn't mention dreams. We mentioned believers, people. I didn't mention unbelievers. Do you know God uses unbelievers to answer prayer? Sure he does. 
the story of Cyrus is a good example in the Old Testament. God, you, you know, when I was the president of the Bible College, we were doing a fundraiser, and one of my largest donors was this guy that was a, just a sinner. He just wasn't a Christian at all. But his son was, and his son worked at the college, and so he wanted to bless the college, and he would tithe on this mammoth income he got, and we'd get these checks all the time from somebody that didn't even believe in the gospel of Jesus, didn't go to church. God will even interrupt the laws of nature to answer prayer. He'll stop the sun, or he'll cause iron to float in water, or he'll let you walk on water. Listen to me. Either God is a God of truth or he's a liar. Either he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, or he's not. He says in the book of Malachi, I'm the Lord, I change not. I remember being in a prayer meeting in Bible college. I wasn't the president. I was a student at that time, and it was in the boys' dorm. And at the end of the prayer meeting, a guy named Bob Isbell said to us, he said, I lost my wallet on the way home from... Um, on the way home from school today. Now, if you know Bible college students, they're poor, okay? Bible college students, they don't have any money. They, uh, you know, you work, you pay your tuition, you're just trusting God by faith to get through school. And he said, I, I need to find that wallet. Would you pray? So we all prayed together that God would give him a word or show him where it was. He'd already been up and down the street several times looking for it. It was about, what do you suppose, a mile, mile and a half from the school to the dorms. And um, that night, he all testified about this in chapel the following day. That night, he had a dream. And he saw an actual picture of the wallet fall out, hit the ground, and bounce over under a bush, a heavy bush. He got up the next morning, walked back, found that bush, found his wallet. I mean, God can use a dream to answer your prayer. He's done that for me before. He'll do it for you. There's nothing special about that. Um, my dad's back was healed listening to, back in those days, it was a cassette tape. Nowadays, it might be a, I don't know, a DVD or watching YouTube or something. But, but um, a word of knowledge Retta was a beautiful young woman in her early 20s, just a beautiful young woman that attended the school when I was the president from a little town in Oregon called, uh, let's see, it wasn't, I'll think of it here in just a minute. And uh, I was invited by the denomination she was a part of to be their conference speaker in the spring, and they asked me for three nights to preach. And she answered one of the altar calls. I had been brokenhearted that year that I went to preach because she didn't come back to school the second year. She was a wonderful student. She sang and traveled for the school and promoted it and this beautiful harmony, you know, and, and just was a great representative and ambassador for Christ for the school. And then she didn't come back, and I never knew why. And I ran into her when she answered the call, and I went down to minister to the people that were responding. And I said, I said, Retta, why didn't you come back? And she says, well, we just can't afford it. She says, my mom's the pastor of the church, and she said, we just can't afford it. And she said, President Farmer, she said, I feel like I'm benched. I just, she said, I'm stuck in this little town, Myrtle something or other. Uh, I'm stuck in this little town. Nobody knows I'm here. I can't meet any guys. You know, I, have, I feel I have a calling to be a missionary. There's no way to get to the mission field. She said, I'm just desperate. 
And while she was telling me this story, the Holy Spirit quickened some scriptures to me and said, said, Retta, you're in the center of God's will right now. And then I quoted to her Psalm, I remembered exactly, Psalm 27. At the end of the psalm, it says, I would have fainted unless I'd believed to see the goodness of the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he will strengthen your heart. Wait on the Lord. I said, I said, Retta, wait. God's going to speak to you. You're going to know what to do. The next morning, she let me know this uh, after that. The next morning on the way to the bank on the car radio, listening to a Christian station, those very same passages of Scripture were given. And because of that, they anchored faith in her heart, and she says, God's speaking to me. God will answer my prayer. He knows where I am, even though I don't think anybody else does. Well, guess what happens? Two months later, a singing quartet of guys is, is booked at the church to sing, you know, for ministry. And one of them, believe it or not, is the son of missionaries in Africa. And she's called to Africa. And they meet one another and they fall in love. And she goes to Africa with him to be a missionary. Just, just a simple word of knowledge. A phone call. I know two or three stories where nothing but a phone call transformed everything because it was an arrow in the quiver of a Lord. Well, let's, let's move on. God has lots of arrows in his quiver. Um, what's next after that? I, action. Active faith. Prayer and active faith. Um, Going to have to move quickly here. It says in Acts chapter 10, verse 5, to Cornelius, God said, send men to Joppa and send for Simon. Now, Cornelius is praying that he and his family can be saved. And in the middle of that prayer, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to do something. I want you to put legs on your prayers. Okay? I want you to put legs on your prayers. Same thing for Peter in Acts chapter 10, verses 13 and 20. The Holy Spirit said, Peter, get up. Rise up. Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I don't want to do it, Lord. It's impure or unclean. Three times, rise up. Get up. Go do something. Kill it and eat it. Oftentimes, to have your prayers answered, the Holy Spirit will require of you to do something. To do something. To add Faith, not, you can't have passive faith. Pathis, passive faith is where you close your eyes and you grit your teeth and say, Lord, I believe. I believe. Active faith is where you say, Lord, I believe, but I'm going to do something about it. Like in the book of Nehemiah when they were building the wall. You remember that story, Nehemiah? They, after 70 years, as Jeremiah prophesied, and Jerusalem was sacked, and everybody was gone, all the people were transported to heathen lands, and uh, the Persian king granted Ezra and Nehemiah the right to go back and build the wall in the temple. And Nehemiah was the one that went back to build the wall. And they had so much opposition that you can read it there in Nehemiah chapter 4. He says, we prayed and we posted guards. We prayed and we posted guards. So put legs on your prayers. Put legs on your prayers. Answered prayer thrives in an environment of faith. It thrives in an environment of faith. Revival in Argentina broke out 
because a woman, after many nights of disobeying the Lord, finally obeyed the Lord and went up to the altar in front of everybody and just hit her hand on it because God told her to hit her hand on it. And when she did it, revival broke out. 5,000 people were hungry. Jesus was preaching to them. The disciples said it was a desert place. The disciples said, send them home. They're hungry. We can't do anything about it. But there was a little lad with five loaves and two fishes. See, active faith. Do something to add to your prayers. Put legs on your prayers. And I'm going to finish with uh, another A real quickly. Astonishment. Um, it says in our text in Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word and the Jews that were there were astonished. Listen to me what I'm going to tell you. You already know this, but don't forget it. God rarely answers prayer in the timing that you have or in the way you expect. He always astonishes you and does it some other way. And that's fun. I like that about God. I love God, but I like God too. And that's fun about God. He, he answers prayer in ways that you just totally don't, don't expect it to happen. There's this very dear friend of our family. She was 50-some years old, a nurse. We were in our church that we were planning, and she was standing there, a visiting speaker. Uh, William Cathcart was speaking, and she had had a rash. She was a nurse, but medicine hadn't solved. She had terrible rash. I don't know if it is eczema or what it was, all over her hands. She prayed for years and years for them to go away. She finally gave up praying. She just quit praying. She didn't think they'd go away. And during a preaching service, during a preaching service, they just disappeared. Not at the timing she expected, not in the way she expected, but they left and they never came back, just disappeared. And her hands had been red and scaly and she was embarrassed about them and it was just beautiful to see God move suddenly. God loves to move suddenly, doesn't he? The shepherds are on the hillside grazing and suddenly an angel appears and the heavenly hosts come or on Acts chapter 2, uh, they're all in one accord in one spirit praying and suddenly the sound of rushing wind and the heavenly fires. God, all through Scripture, God loves to move suddenly and astonish us. So back to our original verse, Jeremiah 33, 3. If you'll just call on me. If you'll just call on me, I'll answer you. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't give in. You're on the brink of a miracle. You're on the brink of a miracle. At the risk of testing your patience very quickly as the worship team starts their music, I have to read you this little story. Paderewski, the famous composer and pianist, was performing in a great concert hall in America. It was one of those extravagant nights, black tuxedos, beautiful evening grounds. One of the ladies present dared to bring her nine-year-old boy who was fidgety and didn't even want to be there. But she was hoping that when he saw Paderewski that he would start practicing the piano like he's supposed to. She turned to talk to friends and her son was tired of sitting there so he slipped away from her side. They hadn't started the concert yet. Everybody was talking, making noise. So he just slipped down the aisle, walked to the side of the stage, up the steps and he saw this Ebony Steinway over there in the center with this tufted leather seat 
And he walks over and sits down at the Steinway. They haven't even introduced Paderaski yet. And can you believe what he started doing? Chopsticks. <laughs> One of the world's greatest concert pianists. And he starts chopsticks. Frown faces turn to him. All of a sudden, everybody gets quiet. Somebody shouts out, get that boy away from there. Who'd bring a kid that young in here? Where's his mother? Somebody stop him. Now, backstage, Paderaski heard what was going on. He knew what was happening. He grabs his coat real quickly, composes himself, and rushes toward the stage without anybody announcing anything, without an introduction. He goes up and walks up behind the little boy, reaches his arms around his shoulders, puts his hands down on either side of chopsticks, and he begins to improvise a counter melody in perfect harmony with the young man. As the two of them play together, Paderaski kept whispering in the boy's ear, keep going, don't quit, keep on playing, don't stop, don't quit, and so it is. We hammer away at prayer with our insignificant chopsticks. But the master, the master is listening. He hears. He'll meet you where you need that miracle. He'll help you with the barrier, the challenge that you can't get over. He understands your confusion, your brokenness, your loneliness. He understands your uncertainty. But the master is with you. There's an altar inside of you Always pray. Pray accumulated, consistent prayers. Expect the arrows from the Lord's quiver to meet you at your point of need. Let's stand together, shall we? And one thing I might ask of you, I'm sure Pastor Dustin will have a chance to hear this message too. Stephanie's here, his wife. I pray for a church that will develop a culture of prayer. A church that will call forth the intercessors. Every church has two or three called intercessors in it. Don't know who they are, don't know where they are. But to lead, lead the fight. So the Celebration Church will be known as a church where God answers prayer. Lindsay, could we just close with a song and then we'll close in prayer. Thank you, Lindsay. All my life you have been faithful, Lord. New every morning are the mercies of God. Great is his faithfulness. If you're here this morning and you need a miracle in your life, would you just raise your hand quickly? I can think of several. I see several hands. I, I, I can think of some. I don't know if they're public knowledge yet, but, you know, terminal illnesses and... and uh, jobs and finances and marriage relationships or loneliness, uh, it's a, depression, fighting depression, it's all around us. Lord, all our life you have been faithful. We're going to add another bamboo strip today and keep praying. We're not going to quit. We're pressing in. We're persistent, Lord. We're believing you, God, to release your power. Like R.A. Torrey said, prayer is the key that unlocks the storehouse of God's infinite grace and power. Unlock your storehouse of grace and power today on behalf of your people. You saw these hands that were raised, Lord. Meet them. Meet them at their point of need. And let that miracle give witness to the glory of God 
and to your greatness and your goodness. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.